0: From CPR News, this is Colorado Matters. On a pandemic President's Day, a reminder that the founding fathers lived in a sickly time as well.
1: It's amazing that America and the United States eventually thrived and that anyone survived those early years.
0: Then, some historical perspective on presidential transitions. For example, when George Washington made way for John Adams in 1797, someone was watching closely. Britain's King George III was fascinated by the peaceful transfer of power. He called Washington the greatest man in history. Also, inside the White House kitchen, through the eyes of black chefs who became trusted advisors, as Zephyr Wright did for Lyndon Johnson. She was a family
2: confidant. Johnson would use her Jim Crow experiences to lobby for the 1964
0: Civil Rights Act. Plus, the evolving role of First Lady,
1: The largest source of support for Colorado Public Radio comes from members across our state. I'm from
3: Denver.
2: Glenwood Springs.
1: Grand Junction. With your donation, you connect your city to nonprofit journalism, to inspiring stories, and you connect your community to a wide range of music that fills our daily life. These recent months have been tough for everyone, but month after month, donors continue to step up. Thank you for your support.
0: On President's Day, this is Colorado Matters from CPR News and KRCC. I'm Ryan Warner. George Washington, Thomas Jefferson, Benjamin Franklin, and John Adams all care deeply about health and medicine. Perhaps it's because, like us, they lived at a rather sickly time. Today it's COVID-19. Back then it was malaria, yellow fever, and smallpox. DU historian Jeannie Abrams wrote Revolutionary Medicine The Founding Fathers and Mothers in Sickness and in Health. The founding fathers and their families dealt with a lot of sickness, didn't they?
1: Oh, it was extraordinary. Thomas Jefferson, for example, was predeceased by his young wife in her 20s and five of his six children, hmm. and even several grandchildren. He, he once wrote um, a friend in Europe that I was born to lose everything that I love, and it was all to disease, which was common. The mortality rate was very, very high at the time, and Jefferson was kind of an extreme example.
0: An extreme example. The, the infant mortality rate in particular was very high in, in the fledgling America.
1: For children under two, as high as 40% in the early years. Um, As one historian later noted maybe about a half century ago, um, it's amazing that America and the United States eventually thrived and that anyone survived those early years.
0: You say medical care around this time was largely done at home, and it was often self-administered. What are some examples?
1: Well, all of the founding mothers were quite knowledgeable about using herbs and common uh, medicines at the time to treat family members. Diseases that we would certainly go um, for, our first stop would be to a physician, were first thought about informally. So even cancer. Benjamin Franklin advised his sister who had breast cancer about certain folk treatments that he had heard locally, including putting a wooden cone on the breast to cure the breast cancer. It obviously did nothing, but he said that he had heard um, cases where the people had been cured, but they were struggling. It was really an area of darkness in many ways in terms of medicine, and scientific medicine was really just coming into its own.
0: Abigail Adams, Martha Washington, Dolly Madison, all grew medicinal herbs in their gardens.
1: So indeed did Thomas Jefferson. Probably um, one of his major hobbies was growing flowers and plants at Monticello. He probably grew as many as 50 different medicinal plants, used certain plants to treat stomach ailments. And some of them we use to this day. Like what? Well, aspirin. Um, that we use. The ubiquitous and very successful medication aspirin um, is derived from the willow tree. Jefferson, for example, grew lavender in his garden, which was used to treat headaches.
0: There were doctors in this era, but you write that only about 10 percent held medical degrees.
1: Correct. There were no particular rules for becoming a doctor. Most and there was no licensing at the time. Um most physicians really got their training on the job so to speak as an apprentice, but only 10% actually went through formal university training, and that wasn't necessarily all bad. Many of those who had gone through formal university training had only really studied theoretical medicine and did not have much hands-on experience.
0: So, what did it mean to be a doctor?
1: Well, some of it was experimental, but really the foundation for medical treatment um, in early America was almost universally bleeding. That was taking some blood bloodletting, blood as we would know it today, taking some blood from the patient um, in an effort to adjust the body's humors
0: humors what are what are humors?
1: So those were considered the four main aspects of the human body, black and yellow bile, blood, and phlegm. And that was what controlled the stability of the body. That there needed
3: to
0: be some balance between all of those uh, energies. And
1: and disease was the result of an imbalance between those four humors. So bloodletting, for example, would be used to remove an excess of one of those humors.
0: Huh. Even though you'd think that uh, bloodletting might release all four of them. But I guess the idea is that magically the bad one comes out.
1: Yes, really, um, a lot of those ideas seem counterintuitive to us today, but they were followed from the fourth century um, and the Greek um, physician Galen, ultimately George Washington, for example died of what we would consider today quite a treatable disease, some type of strep throat. His epiglottis was swollen. He basically suffocated. But his death was really hurried on by the fact that he was bled three or four times that last day by his physicians, and his body probably also went into shock, which hastened his death.
0: You describe this as taking out over half of Washington's circulating mm-hmm, blood, mm-hmm. over half his blood.
1: Physicians really had just kind of a guesstimate about how much blood a person held in their body and what was safe. And it, it seems counterintuitive to us Um But they felt that they could regulate um, all diseases. Dr. Benjamin Rush, who was probably the leading American physician in the United States at that time.
0: And who signed the Declaration
1: of Independence. Yes, he was revolutionary um, in his uh, medical practice, I would say, in many areas and certainly in his politics. He felt that all diseases could be cured by bloodletting.
0: Thomas Jefferson didn't buy into bloodletting, though, did he? He was circumspect.
1: No. Thomas Jefferson was a very fervent believer in natural medicine. He really felt that the body had the capability to heal itself if only physicians would leave the people alone. Um, This may be apocryphal, but one of the stories circulating about him was that he used to say if he saw two or three doctors in conversation, he'd look up in the sky to see if there were any vultures circling. Benjamin Franklin,
0: whom you call the founding father of American medicine, helped start America's first medical school in Philadelphia, which was the capital of the country at the time. And uh, Jeannie, I didn't know this, he also invented several medical devices, the flexible urinary catheter and bifocals. Mm -hmm. Um, Why was Benjamin Franklin so interested in health? I suppose there probably wasn't anything he wasn't interested in. That's that's
1: correct. And, you know, this whole group of founders were just extraordinarily brilliant people. They were so curious and they were all very much influenced by enlightenment thought. And um, health and happiness and progress were very much interconnected in their minds. So that is one of the reasons, I think, that Franklin in particular was so interested in medicine. Medicine was one way that they felt they could really calculate the index of human progress.
0: And of course, these are people very interested in human potential, in the potential of a new nation.
1: Correct. And, and that
0: would be linked to the health of the populace. Correct. Little is known at this period about microbes. Mm-hmm. Um, and there's this general sense that bad air can cause illness. When Benjamin Franklin dies in 1790, it's thought that he fell ill after sleeping with his windows open.
1: Correct. One of the other general theories along with the bloodletting was that miasmas, bad air, caused many, many illnesses. Um, for instance, I learned this while I was doing the research. Malaria comes from the, ma- the Latin mal- area, bad Oh, error. bad air. Mm-hmm. Okay. Which um, was very interesting to me. So that led to some very ludicrous ideas. Um, for example, during the terrible, notorious 1793 yellow fever epidemic in Philadelphia, doctors were very divided on what they thought the causes um, of that outbreak were. Even Dr. Benjamin Rush, the leading physician, as I mentioned, felt that... Spoiled coffee on the wharves was probably the reason for the outbreak of the yellow fever.
0: And what, that there was something emanating from Mm -hmm, the spoiled? Something
1: emanating from the spoiled coffee.
0: You know, I I think it's also um, really easy to read this book, Revolutionary Medicine, and go, oh, weren't they naive? But if someone writes a book about our medical care today, 50 years from now, they're likely to find some, you know— Crazy notions that we hold.
1: Yes, and I and I think um, we very frequently read stories about medications or treatments today that were considered very successful, only to find out that they were indeed unhelpful. We know how many drugs have caused um, very serious side effects. Right, you think um, about thalidomide
0: unin- or mm-hmm. D, D, I suppose DDT, not necessarily a medicine, but
1: un- unintended consequences and. It's interesting to me that some of those treatments that we consider especially ludicrous, like bloodletting and leeches, um, actually have come back into their own in a certain way. Um, Leeches have been approved by the FDA over the last couple of years as a medical device. Um, They're actually helpful in regenerating blood vessels. And um, bloodletting on a limited basis has also um, helped people with high blood pressure.
0: This book winds up being a, a rather intimate portrait of the founding fathers and mothers. You know, it's their it's their medical histories. <laughs> Where do you turn to get stuff like this?
1: Well, first of all, they were all such prolific articulate writers. Um, most of that information is garnered from their letters. Thomas Jefferson alone wrote over 18,000 letters. And they were very detailed, informative letters. And some of the things that we would consider very private, they exchanged um, with one another very regularly.
0: Thank you for being with us.
1: It was my pleasure. Thank you so much for hosting me.
0: University of Denver historian Jeannie Abrams on her book, Revolutionary Medicine, The Founding Fathers and Mothers in Sickness and in Health. We spoke in 2014. Still to come, from presidential health to presidential politics, and what light history might shed on the tumultuous present. This is a President's Day special from Colorado Matters and CPR News.
2: In a democracy, every official in government deserves scrutiny, and not just in an election year. That's what we do at CPR News. We help you keep an eye on elected leaders who represent you. I'm News
3: Director Rachel Estabrook.
2: We get a lot of questions about how CPR News covers politics and politicians. So we're explaining our coverage and the philosophy behind it.
3: Read how and why we cover Colorado's congressional delegation the way we do at CPR.org.
0: On this President's Day, what can history tell us about the present? Jeremy Anderberg of Arvada is a book reviewer, and in 2016, he went on a mission to read at least one biography of every U.S. president. He's completed that mission. We spoke last month when Joe Biden was inaugurated as the 46th president of the United States. You know, we've seen with the recent violence at the Capitol and former President Trump's refusal to concede that the peaceful transition of power is not a given. Did you find a time in history that echoed this moment?
3: You know, inaugurations have generally been a pretty tame affair. There have really only been a couple instances where that was not the case, and it wasn't really a matter of violence. So after Andrew Jackson was inaugurated, there was basically a huge kegger at the White House. There were ten to 20,000 average Joes who just kind of partied and Uh, tore the house apart, Uh, but that was, you know, more of a party than a safety issue. Really, it was Lincoln's two inaugurations that were the most dangerous. So his first inauguration, he had to sneak into Washington at night and they were worried about his safety, but he did still give the address to a full crowd. uh, And that again happened with his second inauguration as well, even though his vice president for that one, Andrew Johnson, uh, was drunk even though it was morning. Uh, but generally, it's it's really been pretty tame. So this is very, very much unprecedented.
0: Unprecedented, a word we've used a lot in the past year or so. Uh, Biden inherits a pandemic, a struggling economy, the realities of climate change, domestic terrorism, tensions with Iran. And those are just a, a few of the issues. Have other presidents, do you think, faced this many problems out of the gate?
3: Certainly. Yeah, so obviously, you know, when Lincoln was inaugurated, uh, a number of states had already seceded. I mean, that's about as big a crisis as you can imagine. Uh, FDR, when he came into office, it was in the midst of the Great Depression, and the building tensions of World War II were not quite simmering yet, but they were well on their way. Uh, So there were certainly, you know, other really tremendous crises to deal with, but this, this certainly ranks among the top few.
0: Okay, so it stands out in your mind. Was there a time in history that has felt as politically divided as this one? I'm always interested in this question, Jeremy, because I think it's really easy to fall into the thinking that you know the, the time we're living in is the most divided. I, I know that not to necessarily be the case, right?
3: Yeah, that's absolutely correct. So, you know, one of the things I was most curious about when I started this was, was wondering. You know, I already used the word how unprecedented is this, but that was kind of my wondering: Are we are we really this partisan all the time? And the answer really is we are more partisan than not. You know, the the eighties and nineties were actually kind of a a calmer period of time, and that's obviously kind of our recent memory. Uh, oh. But before that you know, going all the way back to the founding was incredibly divided. The press has almost always been uh, incredibly partisan with, you know, newspapers and um, even going into TV stations when that era came along. It's really been extremely bitter sort of the whole way through. And obviously, you know, America has not forgotten the Civil War, but I think we forget the reality of that, that you had you know, men from Virginia, literally fighting in battlefields, men from Maryland. And even though the last couple of weeks makes that a little easier to comprehend, I think we, we do forget that there really was a civil war in our country. Uh, and that's about uh, as bitter and partisan as it gets, obviously.
0: Were there examples uh, of past presidents being able to unite a divided country? I mean, obviously, the Civil War and the aftermath becomes an answer to many of these questions. uh, But I wonder if you might speak to some specifics.
3: Sure. Yeah. So, you know, one of the things that I thought about was Gerald Ford. After Richard Nixon resigned, there was very little trust in government, very little trust in the presidency. And Ford had to come in as a guy who was unelected. Remember, he was appointed as vice president after Spiro Agnew resigned. So he had to come in and heal the nation. And one of the things that he did was quickly pardon Nixon, which uh, was very debated at the time. It was very much a heated decision. And it, it still is to this day. And so he was quick to forgive, certainly. And that was part of moving on. And he was also a pretty uh, level-headed guy, wasn't a big personality. I think the nation needed just kind of a tamer person in office for the healing to happen. And really the same thing happened with Lincoln. So after the Civil War, he was uh, his plan, at least, was to be really quick to forgive the South and to admit them back into the Union. And that was going to cause a lot of tension if he had lived and it it sort of still did anyways. But, you know, one of the hard realities is that quick forgiveness is often uh, a a quick way to healing. So I'm not sure what Mm. that looks like, uh, but it is certainly something to be considered as we move forward.
0: You know, President Trump was a norm buster, uh, and that made his supporters joyous and his critics terrified. Was there another norm buster
3: you ran across? You know, what's pretty amazing is that the precedents that George Washington set uh, were very quickly set in stone. You know, the the amendment that didn't allow a president to run for more than two terms wasn't enacted until the 50s. Uh, So FDR was certainly a norm buster in running Mm. for the presidency four times. That was uh, very unheard of, and he got a ton of flack for that. FDR also tried to pack the Supreme Court, you know, so he... He tried to bust the norm. That one didn't work, obviously. So really with the presidency and the norms, it's kind of a slow build. So you have a president sort of chipping away and and increasing the power of the presidency. That happened in a big way under George Bush when he went to war and sort of enacted some new war powers after 9-11. And that obviously did not go very well. So You know, in some cases, that that norm-busting works out, but in a lot of cases, it, it doesn't.
0: President Biden named Senator Kamala Harris as his vice president and promised that their relationship would be like a partnership and that she would have a significant role to play in policy. Can you think of other presidents and veeps for whom that kind of relationship was true?
3: Yeah, there really have not been many. It's kind of a, a modern phenomenon that vice presidents have had a uh, little, little more sway. So, you know, I think of, of Harry Truman. We remember him as a great you know, World War II leader in the post-World War II era. But he didn't know anything about World War II. He didn't know about the bomb. FDR uh, did not keep him in the loop at all. So I've always found Truman to be an incredible example of leadership. Uh, that he was able to come in with knowing nothing, but to get to your question, you know, uh, Biden sort of did this himself under uh, Obama. He was reluctant to become vice president because he was wary of the role he would have. And actually, you know, a funny story: his wife had to tell him to grow up, and he finally accepted. Uh, and and he had a pretty consequential <laughs> vice presidency, and Obama uh, very much considered him a partner. And so I think he's taking cues from that relationship. And just given his age, I have to imagine that he's seeing Kamala as a sort of natural uh, successor to him, whether that's in four or eight years, however many uh, years that ends up being. Who was your
0: favorite president before this project and did it change after?
3: That's a great question. So beforehand, it probably would have been Theodore Roosevelt. You know, the, the strenuous guy, was a big-time reader, and he loved the outdoors. Uh, and then, you know, I read about him, and he's still very compelling, but you read about his, his supernatural energy, and it's just hard to relate to. Honestly, reading about the guy just made me tired. Uh, so afterwards, I came away really liking his successor, uh, William Howard Taft, who had a, a pretty mediocre presidency, but was just a really lovable guy who wanted to be a Supreme Court justice his whole life. But was sort of pushed into the presidency by by Teddy Roosevelt and by uh, his own wife and he won election on Roosevelt's coattails and had just a miserable four years so then he was out of office lost in 1912 to Woodrow Wilson had a bit of a break and then finally uh, Warren Harding appointed him to be the Chief Justice of the Supreme Court and he loved it he said those were the best years of his life and I just kind of so you know felt bad for the guy but also was sort of inspired, you know, to to go for what you like and not just the, the top rung on the ladder. Taft knew that he wanted to be a justice and he ultimately got there. And that was a really kind of inspiring story.
0: Well, Jeremy, thank you so much for sharing this uh, adventure, presidential adventure with us.
3: It's been a real pleasure for me too, Ryan. Thank you.
0: Jeremy Anderberg of Arvada is a book reviewer and managing editor at The Art of Manliness, a lifestyle website and podcast. You can check out his literary newsletter, Read More Books, at readmorebooks.com. It's President's Day, which falls during Black History Month, and for much of U.S. history, African Americans have cooked for presidents and run their households. Denver food writer Adrian Miller identified at least 150 black culinary professionals who served the nation's chief executives and their families. Some were forced to. Some became so trusted they were asked for political advice. Miller's book is called The President's Kitchen Cabinet. One personality I think really stands out in this book, Zephyr Wright. Tell us about Zephyr Wright.
2: Well, Zephyr Wright, of all the cooks that I identified, if I could just meet one and sit down and have a meal, she's the one. So she was the private cook for Lyndon Johnson, and she cooked for the Johnsons before he actually became a politician. And um, a lot of people credit her food to helping his rise in politics because, he, you know, the nature of things was to entertain and get to know people and bring them over to your house. And so she would make these wonderful southern dinners and was well known for the food that she created. But she encapsulates a lot of the themes of my books because she was a culinary artist, well celebrated. She was a family confidant. When uh, Johnson was inaugurated, she sat in the inauguration box with the family. And then um, she was like a civil rights advocate because Johnson would use her Jim Crow experiences to lobby for the 1964 Civil Rights Act. Experiences like what? Well, the family would drive back and forth from Texas to Washington, D.C. And when she went along with the family, she couldn't go to the bathroom with them. At the same time, she could not eat with them in the same places. It got so bad that she finally refused to make the trip. And so Johnson would say uh, to members of Congress, it's a shame that the president's cook has to experience
0: this. So obviously, after the assassination of President Kennedy, she, as Johnson did, rose uh, to prominence in the White House. Yes, yes. But there was a holdover
2: chef from the Kennedy administration, a French chef named René Verdun. Now, he was making French food, which LBJ and the Johnsons weren't feeling. So they would ask him to make (laughs) Tex-Mex and Southern food. And he would call chili con queso, you know, that cheese. He would call that chili concrete. And so they would ask him to make, you know, nachos and other things. And when he would mess it up, they'd say, oh, go talk to Zephyr and have her teach you how to do it. It got so bad that Verdon finally quit.
0: I see. Yeah. Boy, that that is a symbol of the difference between the Kennedy and the Johnson administrations, if there there was one. Are there other White House servants, and by that I mean cooks and stewards, that's another position, who became... Politically active that way in in their advice. Yeah. One of the most remarkable stories is a woman named Lizzie McDuffie. Uh,
2: Now, she was actually a maid, but she would help out with food, especially when President Roosevelt would travel. That's who she worked for, President Franklin Roosevelt. In the 1936 election, she actually went on the stump and uh, stumped for him in cities with a large African-American population. And so she was so successful. She went to about 8 cities that after he won that 1936 election, Roosevelt invites her into the Oval Office and personally thanks her. Now, the Hatch Act existed at that time, which forbid, you know, forbade um White House employees from, you know, campaigning and things like that, but she never got pressed on it.
0: I see. And one way that uh servants in the White House wind up helping politically is if there is a state dinner or something like that on short notice, right? So where food becomes something of an, of an elixir of diplomacy, they have to act. right? I think of, of that, I think in the Johnson administration, in which he would call dinners at the last minute. Right. And here we get Zephyr
2: Wright again, and we just see the genius of Zephyr Wright. So if he would show up at the last minute with a large party and uh-huh. demand a dinner, what she would do is she would just start sending out a bunch of liquor. So, people wouldn't <laughs> think about the food. And then she would serve up whatever
0: was needed. That bought her some time. Oh, yeah. And it kept people entertained. And no one complained, believe it or not. Why the focus on African Americans in particular? Give us some context into the role they have played over time.
2: Yeah. Well, I think it's simply because African Americans have dominated. Um, the cooking positions in the White House uh, Mm -hmm. throughout history. And I've identified 150 people, as you noticed, and I know I'm just scratching the surface. And they've um, played a lot of different roles. And over time, they have mirrored the status of African Americans in the broader society. A lot of our presidents were slaveholders, so we had a lot of enslaved cooks in the White House. And then we see people as free laborers engaging in White House cooking. Now, at that time, for much of the 18th and 19th century Cooking and servitude were pretty much the only jobs that African-Americans could enter into without getting a lot of white backlash. Mm. And so a lot of people chose that uh, profession and excelled at it.
0: So it's a microcosm in many ways of what's happening nationally. And we really should talk about the nation's first president, George Washington, who had several African-Americans in service. And one of them, named Francis, was a steward and ran the household Managing the budget, ordering the food, supervising other employees. Another was a cook named Hercules... And both were Washington's slaves.
2: Well, Francis was a free man, actually. So ah. Francis was a biracial man born in Haiti who immigrates uh, to New York probably in the 1750s, runs a business a one place called Francis Tavern, which a replica exists to this day. So Washington would come over and grub at his place. And he loved his food so much that when he became president, he said, I want you to manage my kitchen. I see. And Hercules was brought from Mount Vernon to run the uh, residence in Philadelphia. Uh, The residence was there before the White House was actually constructed. The interesting thing about that is uh, Pennsylvania had a law that said any enslaved person who was on Pennsylvania soil for more than six months was automatically free. So the way that Washington got around that is just about the time the six month deadline would toll, he would pack up all of his enslaved people, send them back to Mount Vernon, have them stay there for a few weeks, and then bring them back to start the clock. Noon.
0: Resetting the clock. Yeah. And that was true for this cook named Hercules, yes. who, who was a slave. Yes. What did that make you think of George Washington? Did it change your impression of him?
2: Uh, well, no, I was fairly, fairly um, um, well-versed in his history uh-huh. with enslaved people. So it just reinforced the things that I knew. And I know it's a complicated situation, but uh, I just like, man, that's kind of messed up.
0: Yeah. To do that. To send him out of state to reset the calendar. Yeah. Any sense of who Hercules was? Yeah. So we know that he was a very temperamental chef. He probably would fit in
2: well in a lot of the cooking shows we see on TV today, but um, very accomplished. Um, We know that he was a rather stocky man, kind of a large man, but um, just very good at cooking. And I think later escaped. Yes. On Washington's 65th birthday, he runs away and he's only seen one time after that. And there's a, a portrait of Washington of, of Hercules uh, sitting in a museum in Spain. And the portrait was painted by Gilbert Stewart, the same guy who painted that iconic portrait of George Washington. It says, a cook for George Washington. And you look at the clothing in that painting, and it looks like the clothing a chef in Europe would wear at that time. Not one in America. So we believe that he just ran
0: overseas. Ran overseas. So that he would not be caught, I suppose, by Washington, who I think continued to look for him. Right. Washington spent a lot of time looking for him, and um, he would spare
2: no expense to track him
0: down. Oh, Adrian, give us some examples of foods that presidents particularly liked and brought to the White House, and therefore the people had to cook for them.
2: <laughs> right. So um, best example is probably Lyndon Johnson, just the, the Southern and Tex-Mex that he brought. So he loved chili He loved nachos. By the way, President uh, Obama loved nachos as well and guacamole. Uh, But, you know, a lot of presidents loved French food. So Jefferson definitely had French food served in the White House. So did James Monroe and Chester Arthur. He was known as a gourmand. Uh, And so he had a lot of uh, elegant food. But then Kennedy brought a lot of New England favorites. So usually it's the food of their childhood
0: that they bring with them. Jefferson having an interest in French cooking, I understand, brings essentially a kind of gourmet mac and cheese into the White House.
2: Right. So in the earliest days of mac and cheese in this country, it was really wealthy Americans who would travel to Europe. They got introduced to the dish and they would bring it back. And we know that Jefferson served mac and cheese in the White House because one of the dinner guests wrote about it in his diary. He was a guy named Reverend Manassas Cutler. And he was—he uh, really couldn't figure out what mac and cheese was. He thought the pasta were big onions. And so he had to ask the guy next to him, what is this dish? And he explained that it's a pasta dish from Italy. And, da, da. and that person was Meriwether Lewis.
0: Ah, Yeah,
2: he was at that dinner.
0: On- onions and cheese, that sounds awful. You mentioned several presidents who had a little trouble pushing themselves back from the table. <laughs> Their wives and staffs actually had to try to keep them on diets. And uh, President Taft who notoriously weighed about 340 pounds, had a real taste for apple pie.
2: Yes. Uh, he, loved, he loved apples in general. And so when he would travel on the train, there was an African-American chef named John Smeads, and he was well known for his apple pie. But he was on a strict diet, and if the First Lady or the White House physician was on the train, it was a no-go for the president. But even when they were off the train, the staffers knew he was on a diet and they knew they would hear it from either the First Lady or the White House Physician. So they actually formed this secret order of the apple pie in order to get some of John Smead's famous pie, but keep the president away from it. And the president knew what was going on and kind of played along.
0: Food, specifically beans, caused a big controversy in Lyndon Johnson's administration. Uh, here's some tape you found from the Johnson Library, where the president's personal secretary, Juanita Roberts, calls the cook, whom we've spoken about earlier, Zephyr Wright. And uh, Roberts' questions Wright very closely about what kinds of beans the president likes. So let's listen. Um, Zephyr Wright speaks first.
1: He like pork and beans. He like temptoe beans. He like uh, lima beans, green beans. That's green limas uh, are dried. green limas. Green. Mm-hmm.
2: Why did that conversation take place? Well, this is one of my favorite stories in the book. So the White House released a recipe for something called Pertinales River Chili. And that's a river that runs alongside the LBJ Ranch in Central Texas. Now, if you know any Texans, chili in Texas does not have any beans. And so when the White House releases this recipe, people across the country freak out. <laughs> and they want to be reassured that their president loves beans. So this was all just a spin control. And so they had to go to the source, the authoritative source on the subject that was Zephyr Wright. And it's funny because this is part of all of the collection collection of the audio tapes that Johnson had in the White House. So the recording system was actually put in under Kennedy. Johnson takes it up a large scale and he actually recommends it to Nixon. And we know how that turned out.
0: Yes, indeed. The doing in of Nixon. Thank you so much for being with us. Thank you. Denver food writer Adrian Miller speaking with me in 2017. We revisited that conversation for President's Day. And a note that since we spoke, Miller joined the CPR Board of Directors. Okay, up next, the changing role of First Lady. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. Hey, it's Vic Vela from CPR's podcast, Back from Broken. Last season, we told stories of life's challenges, of recovery, and hope. And you listen. Really blown away by Back From Broken.
3: Back From Broken inspired me to... Thank you very much for your messages of recovery and hope. They mean a lot to a parent like me.
0: So this season on Back From Broken, more stories about hope. Happiness is just like right here. You know, it's in being alive. Find Back From Broken on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. In the early days of the Republic, it wasn't clear what the wife of the president should be called. Sometimes it was the presidentess or Mrs. President. Martha Washington was often referred to as Lady Washington. Like her husband, George, she had to navigate a brand new role. So what was it like to be one of the first First Ladies? And how much has that role changed since? Let's hear again now from historian Jeannie Abrams of the University of Denver. She wrote a book about Martha Washington, Abigail Adams, and Dolly Madison. And welcome to the program.
1: Thank you, Ryan. It's always a pleasure to be with you.
0: Of course, uh, the Americans had just defeated the British in the Revolutionary War. How did that rejection of the monarchy help shape the role of First Lady? I mean, you, you didn't want to come across as too highfalutin, right?
1: Correct. So really what they had to navigate this new role was to try to figure out how to maintain a regal demeanor without a throne or a crown. So everything, ceremonies, clothing, what food they served, all were indicative of the manner that the government was was unfolding.
0: Interesting. You had to be regal, but you couldn't be too queen-like. And this, as you say, came down to what they wore, where the fabrics they wore came from, and even the kind of chair they sat in. Tell me about that.
1: Well, several things. Let's go back maybe to the fashion first, because I think we don't realize how much um, fashion made a political statement at the time. In England, um, kings and queens um, had ceremonies that had been developed over centuries, and they wore elaborate costumes when King George and Queen Charlotte were coronated. Um, One of the witnesses said that Queen Charlotte wore a Jewel-encrusted gown with pearls, for example, as big as cherries. The train of her dress was carried by her lady-in-waiting. A canopy was held over her head by 16 barons. It was made of what they called cloth of gold, gold fibers. And it was a major contrast to what happened in the newly formed United States. George Washington, when he was inaugurated, Um, was dressed in a simple um, brown suit that was manufactured from cloth from Connecticut. Uh, And his wife, Martha, was not even at his side at the time of the inauguration. And when she finally arrived in New York about a month later, she wore an elegant but simple dress, and the local newspaper um, reported very with great admiration that she was clothed in the manufacture of our country. Of that, our
0: country, right? And and so this became incredibly political. And these first first ladies really were under the microscope this this way. Uh, the public gauging whether they were American enough and had mm-hmm. separated enough from the monarchy. And at one point, the question is raised whether Martha Washington during a political salon is sitting in too high a chair if it looks too throne-like.
1: Correct. So she actually um, sat on a platform and a, I guess a comfortable but not unusual chair. But many people criticized the Washingtons for bringing back monarchy. That was too much like a throne, even though there was really nothing throne-like about it. And Abigail Adams, who hated the press and felt that they were very often very critical and unfair, um, really shared with her husband her feeling that everything the Washingtons did were really with the best intentions in all innocence.
0: You write about the close friendship that Martha Washington and Abigail Adams formed. uh, We'll talk about that a little bit later. But I think it's really important to understand the role of women in general, in the late 1700s in this country, the constraints on them, they really didn't enjoy the full rights of citizens at that point.
1: They did not have legal rights, and um, they were not married women, were not allowed to engage in any legal contracts. They couldn't even write wills. So they were um, they were really operating under the laws of Kovachur, um really what that, that is means, covered literally by their covered by their husbands, correct. So even though none of the three women would be what we would call feminists today, and um, I think the word actually applying to them is really an anachronism, I think we have to be very careful not to examine the the past from a presentist type of lens. But um, Abigail certainly um, believed very firmly in education for women, and she also really tried to influence her husband in terms of legal rights for women.
0: I want to talk about their political involvement, because as First Lady Martha Washington, you write, is credited with introducing the country's first political salon. What was a political salon, and why were they important?
1: So we're talking about the days before television, radio. um, Certainly print is coming into its own, many more newspapers. But the way people interacted was really one-on-one. And the American salons really were an arena for politicians to kind of experiment with their ideas, try to persuade one another to come to their um, side. And in that very fragile new republic where there were very soon great divisions between the main the main, the only two political parties at the time, the Federalists and the Jeffersonian Republicans, um, trying to establish unity was a goal um, that was often elusive.
0: And it was often a task that the first ladies saw themselves as fulfilling, uh, helping their husbands in this way.
1: Well, uh, several things. I believe that they really felt their job was to burnish the um, reputations of their husbands. I think many of them uh, acted as kind of informal PR agents, um, The something that we have more formally, obviously, today. But I think they saw that these salons and dinners and entertainments were a way to move forward the agendas for their husband's um, term in office.
0: Which may not be an overtly political act, but is absolutely one with political consequences. Uh, You say the term First Lady probably didn't come until much later when Mary Todd Lincoln was in the role. And you note that there's really never been an official mandate for the role of First Lady. It's always been something crafted by the woman who holds the position. Uh, Jeannie, as First Lady Martha Washington declared that she felt like a state prisoner. Did she give any examples or further explanation of why? Well, I
1: want to put that in a little perspective. I think one of the great values of studying history actually is to put current events in perspective. So I think what we see is from the very first, both the president and first lady were under constant public scrutiny so that was something that Martha did not welcome. Um, she was, when um, Washington was elected, they were both in their late 50s. Um, being in your late 50s in the 18th century was older than being in your late 50s um, today. She felt that they were destined to hopefully live out their lives in tranquility in Mount Vernon. So first of all, she did not like moving to New York. and The capital at the time. Yes, the um, temporary seat of government at the time. And she did not like her social interactions being dictated by the president and cabinet members. And so she wrote her niece and said that she felt often like a state prisoner. That's not unusual. Um, Uh, Harry Truman often referred to the White House as the great white prison. Mm -hmm. So probably most um, presidential couples have had very similar outlooks.
0: It seems that this view of the experience of being a first lady is what brings Martha Washington and Abigail Adams closer together. They become uh, quite good friends. Um, But compared to them, Dolly Madison really comes across as larger than life. I mean, you refer to her as a celebrity of her day. What do you think she brought to that still-fledgling office that the others hadn't?
1: Well, Martha was, first of all, an experienced hostess um, who actually knew how to occupy her position then Abigail Adams was probably the most intellectual of the three first first ladies. Um, she was a political theorist in her own right.
0: She tussles with the press, often in defense of her
1: husband. Correct. And she really um, is extremely well-read, um, probably, as one of her contemporaries said, the most knowledgeable woman of her time in terms of politics and um, culture.
0: I understand that you think she'd be president if she were alive today.
1: Yes. I think that if um, women had been allowed to run for office, um, she probably would have been even more popular than her husband, John, who could be a little prickly sometimes. Okay, um, Abigail certainly had charm, even though she was a very strong-willed um, woman. But I think um, what Dolly Madison was able to do was really, she was very politically savvy, and she also had great charisma, and that combination of the two enabled her to really move her husband forward. Madison could be charming in small groups, but he was pretty shy and retiring generally, and she humanized him, and she was probably the key to his political success.
0: It is really uh, Dolly Madison who helps shape early Washington, what became Washington, D.C. She and her husband are really the first administration to install themselves permanently in, I think, what was called Washington Mm -hmm. City back then. I I wasn't aware of how much she shaped the city. You know, I want to note that um the first three first ladies don't represent the first three administrations because Thomas Jefferson had been elected as a widower.
1: Correct. And um even though Thomas Jefferson's daughter Martha occasionally acted as hostess in the White House, it was really Dolly, it wasn't the White House at that time, the President's House, um, it was really Dolly who experienced her apprenticeship apprenticeship, so to speak, um, as First Lady because Um, She was um, very prominent as Madison's wife at the time, and she and Jefferson got along very well, and Jefferson, although again a charming, um, brilliant personality, Tended to be very informal consciously in the White House. Um, he was the head of the what was then considered um, Demo- Re- Republican-Democrats, Democratic-Republicans. They hadn't um, arrived versus at their the final. So. Versus the Federalists. He really emphasized um, the common man and tried to be very informal. Um, he famously greeted guests in his slippers um, A lot of um, contradictions in personality. He also brought, I think, over 600 bottles of fine wine back from France. Um, So um, there were some things that um, were way beyond the realm of the common man that he um, exhibited. But in any case, um, often um, Dolly would be there to smooth over differences, both in um, Jefferson's administration and in Madison's.
0: In Jefferson's as well. Interesting. And, Jeannie, I was fascinated to read in your book that New Jersey gave some women the vote briefly Mm -hmm. in the 1790s. I think it was only for women who were landed. Is that right? Yeah. And then it was quickly taken away. Uh, I want to ask about suffrage and whether Martha Washington, Abigail Adams, or Dolly Madison had their eye in some regard on women being able to vote.
1: I think only in a very limited fashion. Again, since um, Abigail Adams certainly was an advocate of legal rights for women, I don't think that she realistically envisioned political rights um, at the time, but I think she thought it might um, really occur down the horizon She did write her sister about the women in New Jersey who were allowed to vote. Um, She looked at that with admiration. Um, But she also um, really was a woman of her era in many ways. She felt that men and women had very distinct, separate roles. And at one point she wrote, "Um, all honor is really in following your role to the best of your capacity. But that doesn't mean um, that she also didn't support um, an idea in the future of women voting. What she did believe was that even though women didn't hold the reins of government at her time, she felt that they should have a voice in how the um, journey went forward. Thank you for being with us. My pleasure. It's always a pleasure to be here, Ryan.
0: Jeannie Abrams of the University of Denver wrote First Ladies of the Republic, Martha Washington, Abigail Adams, Dolly Madison, and the creation of an iconic American role. We spoke in 2018. This President's Day, that's Colorado Matters, with thanks to a staff that Aaron Sorkin would be jealous of. Carl Bielich,
1: Allie Butner, Andrea
3: Dukakis, Michelle Fulcher,
0: Matt Hers, Michael Hughes,
3: Carla
1: Jimenez, Avery Lill,
0: Pedro Lumbrano,
1: Alexandra McMahon, Patrice Mondragon,
3: Shane Rumsey.
0: And I'm Ryan Warner. This is CPR News and KRCC.